In this series, we've been investigating 10 additional crimes that we read about in the Bible. We're exploring the who, what, and why of each crime. But more importantly, we want to learn how the Lord God responded to each of these crimes, as well as what we can learn from them. Today, we're especially going to focus in on God's justice. But first, let me just say thank you to all of you for listening to Bible Threads and our other great content from timeofgrace.org. Check out our video teaching and the other seven podcasts. Go to our store at timeofgrace.org and take a look at our books, devotionals, Bible studies, and journals that address hundreds of different topics, all designed to help you grow in your faith, to strengthen your relationship with Jesus, and to empower you to serve others. There's so much Bible content at timeofgrace.org. Check it out. The Bible is incredibly interconnected with threads that run through it from beginning to end. In this podcast, I will uncover these threads, help you dig deeper into God's truth, and inspire you to live your life with greater confidence and joy. Welcome to Bible Threads with me, Dr. Bruce Becker. In today's episode, we're investigating the criminal activity of a man named Achan, who hailed from the tribe of Judah and who fought in the battle for Jericho. What's fascinating about Achan's crime is that the criminal actions of this one man resulted in consequences, not only for him, but also for his family and all of Israel. One guy commits a crime and the entire nation suffers? Now, that doesn't sound like justice, does it? Well, we're about to find out. In our last episode, we met Rahab and the two Israelite spies. Rahab was a resident of Jericho where she made a living in the world's oldest profession. The spies were sent by Joshua on a covert spy operation to learn as much as they could about the city of Jericho. And for whatever reason, the two spies stayed at the house of Rahab. Their covert spy operation, however, didn't stay covert very long. Long story short, Rahab helped the two spies escape capture, and she also helped them get out of the city unnoticed. For her help, the two spies promised that she and her family's lives would be spared when the Lord God would give the city of Jericho into the hands of the Israelites. If you listen to or read Joshua chapter 6, you'll learn how the Lord God conquered the city of Jericho. And yes, that's right, the Lord God conquered the city of Jericho. Joshua and his army really didn't do much. For six days in a row, the Israelite army marched once around the city, blowing trumpets and not saying a word. On the seventh day, they marched around the city seven times. And on the seventh time around, the soldiers all shouted. So, 
all Joshua and his army did was some marching, some trumpet blowing, and on the last march around the city, some shouting. And when they did, the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. But before that final march happened, the Lord God gave some important instructions to Joshua and his army. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into His treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. The Lord God Yahweh commanded Joshua and his army to put to death every person and every animal in the city of Jericho. Now that might seem harsh to us, but this was the Lord God's justice on the wicked city of Jericho and the idolatrous Amorite people. More on God's justice in just a bit. However, Rahab and her family were to be spared, and only things made out of silver, gold, bronze, and iron were to be taken from the city, and then they were to be put into the treasury of the Lord. Next, the Lord God issued a warning. Did you catch that? He said, But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. God very clearly warned the Israelites, If any of you take anything as plunder for yourself, you will bring destruction on yourself, and you will put the entire Israelite people also at risk for destruction, or at the very least, trouble. On the final march around the city, the trumpets were blown, the army shouted, and the walls came tumbling down. The army entered the city and carried out the Lord God's commands. As a final step, Joshua had the city burned to the ground, and he issued a solemn oath from the Lord God himself. Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. By the way, the curse of this oath was fulfilled. 500 years later during the reign of King Ahab. In 1 Kings chapter 16, we read, In Ahab's time, Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his first son Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua 
son of Nun. With the conquest of the city of Jericho, the Israelites moved on to conquer the next city. The name of this city was Ai, spelled A-I, but pr pronounced Ai. Joshua sent some men on another spy mission. By the way, this would be the last time Joshua used spies in the conquest of Canaan. When the spies returned, they told Joshua that only two or 3,000 men were needed to take the city. And the reason? Well, there weren't that many fighting men lived in Ai. So Joshua sent 3,000 soldiers to capture the city of Ai. And to the surprise of everyone, the men of Ai killed about 36 Israelite soldiers and routed the entire Israelite army. Let's pause here for a moment. Does it seem a bit odd when you hear that the men of Ai killed about 36 Israelite soldiers? The number 36 is pretty specific, don't you think? Why then does the biblical text say about 36? Believe it or not, there's a simple explanation for it. In our numbering system, how we count, we use what's called base 10. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. And then we start over. 10 plus 1 is 11, 10 plus 2 is 12, and so on. Well, in the ancient world, around 3000 BC, there was one of the earliest civilizations that existed, known as the Sumerians. The Greeks later called this area of real estate Mesopotamia. Today, it would be Iraq. Anyway, they developed a numbering system using base 60, which are multiples of the number 6. So the number 36 is 6 times 6. In our numbering system, we would say that the number of Israelite soldiers killed was about 30 or about 40. The people living in Joshua's day would say about 36. By the way, we still use numbers that are from the Sumerian base 60 system. For example, how many seconds are there in a minute? 60. How many minutes are there in an hour? 60. What are the three angles of an equilateral triangle? You know where all the angles of the triangle are the same? You've got it. 60, 60, and 60. Here's one more. How many degrees are there in a circle? 360. 6 times 6 times 10. If you're interested in learning more about the significance of numbers in the Bible, I did a podcast series entitled, By the Numbers. In it, you will learn why God can be called the Master Mathematician. Check it out. Now back to our story. In response to this embarrassing military defeat, Joshua laid face down on the ground for much of a day and prayed. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? 
The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? This was not Joshua's finest hour. His prayer to the Lord sounded like the Israelites' whining lament as they wandered in the desert for forty years. At that time they lamented, we should have stayed in Egypt where we had food and water, even though they lived as slaves. Here Joshua lamented, we should have stayed on the other side of the Jordan River. What a slap in the face of God! The Lord God had promised that the land of Canaan would be the homeland of Abraham's descendants. And now Joshua is doubting it, questioning whether God is going to keep his promises? This was not Joshua's finest moment. But isn't that what we find in the Bible? We learn of the great heroes of faith, their love and trust in God's promises, but we also learn of their weaknesses. Just think of Abraham or Moses, or David. They were heroes of faith, yet with flaws. The Lord God Yahweh responded sharply to Joshua. Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. The Lord God revealed what was the cause of the military defeat at Ai. Israel sinned by violating the Lord's covenant. Did you catch that? Israel sinned. There wasn't just one or a few perpetrators. From God's perspective, if just one Israelite broke the covenant, then the entire nation broke it. Now, there's a parallel to this with our first parents. Adam and Eve were the ones who broke the perfect relationship they enjoyed with God. But the consequences didn't just affect Adam and Eve. The consequences have, effect, have affected every single one of their descendants. The bottom line for the military defeat at Ai is that the Lord had said that everything in Jericho was earmarked for destruction except for the things made out of gold, silver, bronze, and iron. These were to go into the Lord's treasury. But somewhere in the Israelite camp, there were articles that should have either been destroyed or put in the treasury or both. And remember, before the Jericho walls came tumbling down, the Lord God had made crystal clear what he wanted them to do with the plunder of Jericho. So they were all without excuse. In addition to this pronouncement that Israel broke the Lord's solemn covenant, 
the Lord God, in His mercy, laid out the plan for getting rid of the items devoted to destruction, as well as to identify the one individually responsible. It would happen the following day. Now, we're not told the process used to find out who the criminal was. Whatever the process, it was revealed that the perpetrator was first from the tribe of Judah. Next, the clan was identified, and then the family, and finally the individual. The guilty party was Achan. He was a looter of a beautiful robe from Babylon, which should have been destroyed. He was also a thief who stole gold and silver that belonged to none other than Yahweh himself. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. What Joshua said to Achan is not what I would have expected. I would have thought he would have said something along the lines of, Achan, you idiot. About three dozen of your fellow soldiers are dead because of you, and we lost a battle that we should have won easily. But he doesn't. Instead, Joshua called him, my son, and then encouraged him to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. And he did. Achan confessed his sin. He didn't try to make excuses. He didn't blame anyone else. He acknowledged his sin against his God. Achan replied, It is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, two hundred shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing fifty shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. Achan confessed his motive. He confessed what he did wrong. He confessed the location of the things he had taken. You know, Achan's confession of sin is actually a model for how to confess sin. But why did Achan not make his confession earlier? Like the day before when the Lord God said that there was forbidden plunder in the camp. Did he think that God didn't know who did it? Did he assume others had done what he had done and, and, and maybe even worse? When the process for identifying the guilty party was narrowing in on Achan, why didn't he step forward and just admit what he had done? We just don't know. But before we criticize Achan, we should perhaps ask ourselves that very question. If God knows everything, why am I sometimes reluctant to confess my own sin? For breaking the Lord God's covenant with his chosen people, the punishment for Achan was severe, and not only for him, but for his entire family and household. This was the punishment that the Lord God chose for Achan. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys, and sheep, his tent, and all that he had, to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, 
and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan they heaped a large pile of rocks which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. You might have noticed that the word Achor is similar to the word Achan. In Hebrew it means trouble. Achan received his death sentence in the Valley of Trouble. Again, this punishment may seem harsh to us. And then, why did God destroy Achan's family as well? Were they accomplices to Achan's crime? Was God using this to reinforce a lesson that he had taught the Israelites during the life of Moses, when Korah rebelled against Moses' leadership? The punishment for Korah's sedition was similar. All of Korah's family were punished with him. Or did the family know that Achan had buried the stolen items in their family tent and said or did nothing about it? Perhaps. The Bible doesn't tell us the reason, so it's probably best that we not speculate about it. The punishment against Achan and his family has led some people to conclude that the God of the Old Testament was a vengeful moral monster. The Bible speaks frequently about the Lord's fierce anger and God's wrath. In fact, this attribute of God occurs hundreds of times throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament. But the Bible also speaks just as frequently about another one of God's attributes, that being God's love, His mercy, and His grace. So, is God's wrath in direct conflict with his love? Are these opposing attributes of our God? Not at all. There is no conflict between God's wrath and God's love. In fact, God's wrath and God's love are in perfect harmony. Let me explain. Our God is a holy God. He is perfect. He is righteous. He hates sin. And as a holy, righteous God, he has no option other than to punish sin. He would not be a holy, righteous God if he didn't punish sin. Now, all people who have ever lived on this planet, from Adam and Eve to the 8 billion people that are currently living on this third rock from the sun, are deserving of God's punishment because all of us have disobeyed our God in thought, word, and deed. A holy, righteous God can't excuse sin. He can't ignore it. He can't pretend that it never happened. He needs to demonstrate his wrath against sin. Bible scholar and theologian J.I. Packer summarized God's wrath in his book, Knowing God. He said this, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. By the way, I would recommend reading this book by Packer, Knowing God. But God is also a God of love. He has loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son to be punished instead of us. Jesus left heaven's throne, came to this earth, lived the holy life we could never live, 
and he died on Calvary's cross where he experienced the full wrath of God for what we all did wrong. And those who believe that Jesus has forgiven their sins no longer have to worry about God's wrath. God's wrath has been 100% satisfied in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Christians living in Rome, summed up the relationship between God's wrath and God's love this way. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. God's wrath and God's love are in perfect harmony with one another. God's wrath against us is satisfied because of God's love for us. There are some lessons for us to learn from the crime of Achan. Criminal activity on the part of God's people have consequences. In the case of Achan's crimes of looting and theft, he, his family, and all of Israel experienced trouble. The Israelite army lost the battle and were routed. Three dozen soldiers lost their lives in the battle, and Achan and his family lost their lives. The story is a reminder to us of how serious God takes sin and how our individual sins can harm others. It also reminds us that our God is a God who demands justice. Yet instead of us having to experience God's wrath, Jesus experienced it for us. That's because he loves us. Let me repeat one more time what I said a moment ago. God's wrath against us is satisfied because of God's love for us. True Crimes, Bible Edition 2. In our next episode, we'll investigate the crimes committed by a woman who destroyed the life of one of the Lord God's chosen judges. Her name was Delilah, the judge was Samson. If you have any comments or questions regarding this episode or any other, I'd love to hear from you. Email me at bruce at timeofgrace.org. Thanks for listening, and God bless.